but for the rest of us, 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. And if you're visiting, again, I want to say welcome. Just very glad you're here, whether you are convinced of these things or not. We're very glad you're here and um, pray that this is going to be beneficial for all of us. Um, this, we're in a letter that's written by the Apostle Peter. That's the famous Peter in the New Testament, one of the twelve apostles. And uh, we're really getting near the end of this series. We've been looking at this in the winter and the spring. And it's a five-chapter book of the Bible, so we're wrapping up the fourth chapter. Um, I, I knew a student at Vanderbilt University, and he, he, he and his friends told me about a phenomenon they had observed with his, uh, with his dating experience that this guy would get interested in a girl and he would ask her out and uh, if she said yes, you know, he might go out a couple of times or maybe even really get interested and go out several times. And then the girl would cut it off and she would either go back to her old boyfriend or she, or she would go to a new boyfriend and she would marry the next person she dated. And so I don't know if it was his friends or himself, but he became uh, known as the clarifier Um, happily married now. I, 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 I've, I've told some stories I haven't finished uh, lately, so I wanted to finish. He is happily married now. But, uh, but he became known as the clarifier. The New Testament, and not just in, in what we're studying, but the New Testament speaks of something that Jesus promised you will encounter in the Christian life. And really, in, in a, a great sense, it's the clarifier. It's the clarifier for... Um, a charge that is fairly laid at the door of Southern professing Christians a lot. I'm probably going to touch on this again. And that is something along the lines of, you know, um, if you had grown up in Yemen, you wouldn't be a Christian. If you had grown up in Afghanistan, you wouldn't be a Christian. But, you know, you grew up in whatever, uh, Greenville, or you grew up in the Deep South or, or whatever. And so that's the main reason you're a Christian, but it's culturally conditioned and don't you see how the churches are full of uh, nominal Christians, name-only Christians, on the rolls, technically profess to be Christians, but not interested in it, doesn't define their life. You can tell, and they can tell, usually. What clarifies who the real followers of Christ are and who name-only professing Christians are? And it, the clarifier is what this text describes. 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ... You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner 
Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Let's pray together. Our Father, many of us, as you know, have grown accustomed to a room full of people sitting still for half an hour to hear a passage from an ancient book discussed. And Lord, we who are accustomed to that, would you now shake us and show us that this book is making supernatural claims, is making supernatural demands of us? Father, to those here this morning who do see that this is weird and, we, and that it's not their custom to be here, would you make this time not just beneficial but real and understandable and changing in their hearts and ours? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one of the very famous parables of Jesus is the parable of the sower and the seed. And Jesus talks about you've got a guy that's, uh, you know, he's a planter, he's a farmer, and he's just taking bags of seed, he's scattering them on the ground. And Jesus said there are four kinds of ground that it lands on. And then later on, his disciples come to him and they say, what does that parable mean? And it's nice because there's, there's some parables he told where he did not give the exact explanation. And sometimes we really wrestle with what is the explanation. But on this one, he just went straight down the line and said, here's what the parable of the sower means. Boom, boom, boom. And there are four different types of soil. Only the last one is really the good soil that bears 30, 60, or 100-fold. And he says, now look, the seed is the gospel. And the person sowing the seed is somebody that's spreading the gospel. It may not you know, be a full... It may not be a, a vocational minister. It's just anybody who's setting it out there, scattering it out in the world, not knowing where it's going to land. And the second scenario that he describes is where the seed falls on ground, and, it, and things seem to go great. And the seeds germinate quickly, and it seems like it's doing well, but then the sun beats down on it. And what that demonstrates is that th this, this little plant, this little fledgling plant, it doesn't really have a root system. It doesn't really have depth of soil. And so when that heat bears down, it just wipes it out. And again, Jesus says, the soil is the heart. These different heart responses to the gospel. The seed is the gospel. What is the sun? You know what he said? It's when people start making fun of you. It, it's persecution. It's tribulation. And, and tribulation and persecution, there's a spectrum to it. It may be, quite literally, um, the police state bursting into your place of worship, bursting into your home, and confiscating the Bibles, and all the Christian literature, and throwing you into prison, and maybe executing you. It can be that, or it can just be... The sarcastic remark, the lifted eyebrow, the exclusion from the get-togethers of the haves. But it's something in there. And Jesus was always frank about the fact that this is not abnormal. This will happen to you. In fact, the night before he's crucified, he says, listen, the pupil, you know, the student is not above his teacher. The disciple is not above his master. If they hated me... They will hate you. 
And in the cultural context of the recipients of this letter, boy, they didn't need any convincing of that. That was up close and personal. But when you live in a churchy place, when you live 2,000 years later in an area where the gospel has really permeated a culture and a city and a region, it can be hard to feel this. Wherever it lands with you, whether this is something you feel like you've hardly ever experienced or you live with it day in and day out at home or at work, this is God's Word for us this morning. So here's what I want to look at. First off, what is the type of suffering that Peter's talking about? What's what's the type of Christian suffering? What's the benefit of it? And then what are the actions of it? What's the type? What's the benefit? Benefits. Then what are the actions of this suffering? All right, first the type. Suffering covers a lot of ground. What kind of suffering is Peter talking about? From what he says, he's not talking about just the suffering that all of us go through living in an imperfect world, in a fallen world. You know, whether you were Christian or Buddhist or Taoist or agnostic or whatever, if you were living in an area of Japan that was decimated by the tsunami, you got decimated. You felt it, whatever your belief system was. If tornadoes hit your area in Alabama, you know, a week and a half ago, it was decimated whatever your belief system is. Everybody in this room, whatever you think or believe, is touched by disease and by grief and loss and bad economies and all that stuff. It can't be that. And Peter says in verse 15, I'm not talking about if you're a professing Christian, but you go out and live inconsistently with that. He says in verse 15, "...but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler." The first three are pretty stout sort of uh, acts of immorality. And the fourth one is just kind of garden variety. You're a meddler. You rub people the wrong way. But here's what it's saying. If you're a person who's a professing believer in Jesus Christ, but you're very self-righteous, and so the way you talk to your peers, the way you talk to your family is condescending and it's unsympathetic and that doesn't go over well with them and you feel that it doesn't go over well with them, you're not supposed to go, well, okay, well, there it is, persecution. I'm being persecuted. No, you're rude. You know, and there's a difference. I mean, that's consequence. That's a consequence of bad living. And Peter says, that's not the kind of suffering I'm talking about. So what kind am I talking about? Verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Now, what does that mean? Because Christ did things that none of us are going to do or could do. I mean, early on in this letter, in chapter 2, Peter's talking about He bore our sins on His body, with His stripes, with His wounds, we're healed. We can't do that. All right, well, then He goes on. What does He say? Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. And then verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ. All right, now we begin to understand what He's talking about. It's suffering, wherever it is in the spectrum, I mean, out and out, imprisonment, execution to just snarky remarks. It's being insulted and mistreated because you are identified with Jesus. That you are aligned with Jesus Christ and with His people. 
that you've come under that name. Did you know the word Christian only shows up three times in the New Testament? That's amazing. We use the word all the time. It's only three times in the New Testament. One of the places is in this text. We're used to that word. And though you'd find this somewhere, I mean, in some areas of Greenville where people are, you know, maybe kicking against their past or just whatever, just refusing it, rejecting it. Largely in Greenville, the word Christian is a positive. To the recipients of this letter, it would be a term of derision. That, oh, you're a little Christ. It would be an insult. It would be a put down. It would be to put you. It would be to uh, put you in a box. The suffering is to find yourself in that box. Um, what does this look like? You know, it can look like anything. Probably not going to be the police bursting in to take our Bibles out of our homes or out of downtown pros. But it may be something like uh, you might be having you might be having a meal with cool people. Some of you are cool people, but some of us only know cool people who may or may not go to a meal with us. But, you know, you might be, like, in other words, you're, you're at, maybe you're just spending time or you're having a meal with somebody, and it's people with just the kind of social capital that really all of us deep down would like to have. And let's say that as you're having a meal, that a socially awkward person, and I'm saying this to members of our church, Let's say a socially awkward person that you know from here comes up and speaks to you at the table. And, and they are awkward. And they walk off. And the friends ask, do they go to your church? You know, that's a little moment. That's a little moment that's a window into who we are. And what we really want deep down. But that's the type of suffering, and that's mild, that Peter talks about. And by the way, did you catch the first thing he says in this passage? Do not be surprised by it. And he is just echoing his master, the Lord Jesus. It is and will be normative. So what are the benefits of it? A couple of things here. And really what we're getting at, what... what What's the nature of suffering? What, what, what is it? What is the substance of it? From God's point of view, a couple of things. First off, it's a test. And it is a painful test. Look at what he says in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the... He doesn't just say the trial. The fiery trial. When it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Um, you know, I've, I've already alluded to this in the service, but think about this. In both the Old and the New Testament, an image that's used of God, and God even visibly manifests Himself this way, fire. That when He appears to Moses in the bush, He's fire. That when sacrifices are accepted, when the tabernacle and the temple are consecrated and they're indwelt by God, fire, the fire glory cloud, the Shekinah glory. And it even says, and this sounds like an Old Testament passage, in the New Testament it says, our God is a consuming fire. Now here's the reality. 
God is a fire, but when His fire touches our lives, what is the effect? Because it's going to be one of two things. It's either going to be a consuming fire, a destroying fire, a judging fire, or a cleansing fire. You know, what, how do you go from crummy gold with lots of other alloys in it to really pure gold? You get that thing so hot, it melts. And what does it do? It burns away the stuff that is not dross. It's consumed, and it cleanses the gold. And that image is used throughout the Bible of God's dealings with His people. Look at... There's two strange... Well, not just two, but look, look at these strange verses in this passage. Verse 17. Again, this sounds very Old Testament, but here it is. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. What is the household of God? As we have said... God's house is not the building. He lives in no sanctuary. He doesn't live at 435 West Washington. He lives in no cathedral. The, his dwelling is His people. His house is His people. And as we've said, if the kids are rotting, you know, with the dry erase markers on our walls, do not scold them for messing up God's house. We're His house. I guess if they write on you with the markers, then you can level that complaint. But on the building, no. Okay, the church, the people, are the household of God. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those... And look at this phrase. Who do not obey the gospel. That phrase is used about three times in the New Testament. And in some ways it's an odd phrase because the gospel, i.e. the good news, is that our level of obedience should judge us. Our level of obedience should condemn us. But because somebody else came along and obeyed for us and took the punishment for our disobeying, if we believe in Him, all that's credited to us. That's the good news. So how do you obey the gospel? What's the obeying? And this is an amazing thing. Sometimes God comes... Or He sends someone and He invites. And this came up in the song we just sang. Without money, without money, come to Jesus Christ and buy. That's from Isaiah 55. But sometimes God comes and He says, Believe. What is that? Is that Him being a dictator? That, that is the parent yelling at the child in the street, get out of the street to the one trillionth degree. I love you. I see everything you do. You bear my image. I am utterly invested in you. You must believe. If you do not believe, you will get what you deserve. If you believe, you will receive everything that my precious son deserves. He deserves every good thing. It says in 1 John 3.23, and this is his commandment, that you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. It is the fire of insults 
especially coming to the institution of the church, especially coming to the institution of the church in a churchy part of the country. It is the fire of suffering that exposes, is this real? Is this real or did you just grow up with this? Is he so good that if somebody looks at you with a raised eyebrow, it is such a non-event? Or that you're excluded, it is such a non-event because you have found treasure. You know, last uh, Sunday, I, I, I used no illustration from the royal wedding. So I'm required by law to use an illustration now from, about Navy SEALs. Uh, lots of talk about Navy SEALs this week. And um, I heard, heard, uh, heard and read several things. Like Anybody that knew a SEAL or could find a SEAL interviewed them this week. Say, like, who are these guys and how do they do it? And y'all are awesome. And one of the things, um, I heard a guy, I can't remember his name. He just came out with a book called The Heart and the Fist. And it, he was a Rhodes Scholar. And then he was a Navy SEAL. And now he's written a book. And he set up a humanitarian organization in, like, third world countries. So, okay, all men here just... Repent, okay? <laughs> but uh, I heard him interviewed, and he was talking about the, the school that begins Navy SEAL training. It's in Coronado, California. It's called BUDS. BUDS stands for Basic Underwater Demolition slash SEAL Training. And there are three phases to BUDS. And the first phase is almost exclusively physical training, and it's affectionately known as gut check. And it, it's so bad. It is so bad, we don't have adjectives for how bad it is. And about the, I don't know, fourth, fifth week of it is Hell Week. And in Hell Week, which begins Sunday and goes till Friday, um, guys going through buds that whole week get three to four hours of sleep. Per night? No. For the week. And this is when the instructors turn the heat up, or actually the cold down, as far as it'll go. And they act like torturers. And they have these guys out in the middle of the night when they've been going for three straight days in the Pacific. You know, like the cold pool at the Y to me is the one that's 80 degrees. That's the cold pool to Brian. The Pacific where they are is, you know, high 50s. Have them out there at night just, just taking them to the brink. And the guy that wrote that book, he said he remembered that one night they took the bell out there. And the bell, anytime you want to get out of buds, when you've had enough, there's only like a 15 to 20% success rate. Anytime you want out, you go into this little quad and you go up to a bell and you ring it three times. Well, one night they brought the bell out and these guys are holding hands in the water and they're freezing, no relief in sight. And the instructor said, all you got to do is ring this bell. That's all you've got to do. And whoever rings this bell gets donuts and hot coffee right now. Just killing them. It's horrible and beautiful at the same time. Now, in that illustration, are the, instruct are the Navy SEAL instructors God? No. And this guy that wrote the book, he, he said in an interview, they look like they don't want you to pass. They do want you to pass, but they want you to pass. 
they don't want to be walking into a room with guys with not play guns, but real guns, unless you're supposed to be a SEAL. They want those guys to pass, but they want you to pass. The instructors are trials. And God in His mercy sometimes will give you light ones, the two-key remark, or it might affect your pay, your employment, your family get-togethers. But He's cleansing us. One day He's going to cleanse everything. Did you know that? One day He's going to cleanse the whole cosmos. But we are the new creation. And that cleansing begins as trials and suffering get at things to say, is this real? Or did you just grow up with this? If you grew up with it. It's a test and it's an anointing. It says in verse 14, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. All through the Bible, God calls people to do some hard thing, some special thing. It might be warfare. It might be leadership. It might even be crafting something. And it will say that God's Spirit comes on the person to do something bigger than they could ever do. At God's instruction to do the thing that He's calling them to do. When you are insulted, when we go through these light and momentary afflictions, the Spirit of the God of glory is on you. It's unseen to the insulter, but God is on you. And His Spirit is equipping you to do the very thing that He's called you to do. Be a friend to this person when they do not understand you. Be a neighbor to this person when they hate Christians. Be involved in the life of our downtown when you keep bumping into the person who got burned by a church or who's had it with Christianity or who's down with all the Christianity and religion in Greenville. Persevere. God's Spirit is on you. Spirit of glory. If we're not to retaliate, what are we to do? You know, because it hurts. It hurts to be insulted. It hurts to be persecuted. What are we to do if we're not supposed to, to hit back? Two things. Number one, rejoice. And here's a supernatural demand. Rejoice. And where did Peter get this? He got it from Jesus. Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount. He goes through those first things. Blessed are the this... They'll have this, blessed are this, they'll have this, call it the Beatitudes. What are the last Beatitudes? Blessed are you, are you when men persecute you and insult you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely. Great is your reward in heaven. This is how they talked about the false prophets. In Luke it says, if that happens, jump for joy. James, in the New Testament, he says, hey, when you encounter these tests, these trials, count it joy. How? (laughs) How? That's a great thought. I'd like to be that kind of strong person. I hate it when it happens, to tell you the truth. How do you rejoice in those times? 
the word that does it for me in this passage, verse, um, verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Why is that so great? In Greek, that's the verbal form of koinonia, fellowship. And not fellowship like coffee around the urn. But I mean, why don't we walk through this life together and be tied at the hip? Before, before the Apostle Paul was Paul, when he was Saul, and he hated Jesus. And he hated Christians. And it definitely would have been a term of derision when he used it. He's going to Damascus, and he's going to round more of them up, and he's going to cart them off, and he meets Jesus. And do you know what Jesus said to him? Did he say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute my people? He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul never hit Jesus. But he is so tied in with his people that as they endure hardship, as they are hit on, as they're insulted, he is utterly with them in it. Already, in this letter of 1 Peter, what has he told us? He said that when men reviled him, he did not revile in return. When they insulted him, he did not insult back. Why not? This is the question, friends. That Why not? When there are people over him saying, yeah, you're going to save everybody? Why don't you save yourself? They said the equivalent of, you are a loser. You are a loser in your ministry, and you're a loser up there. You're dying the worst death a loser can die. And he would not retaliate, verbally or physically. Why not? Because he loves us. That the way to glory is the way of the cross. First suffering, then joy and delight in His presence. And the only way to secure that for us was to absorb the insults and not return them. And what does Peter say? He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And that's the second thing. We rejoice. We rejoice that, yeah, it stings to be left out. It stings to be insulted. Are you kidding me that that's anything compared to Jesus? Are you kidding me? That the Son of God is the lover of my soul and gave Himself for me. That He is the bridegroom and we are His bride. And the wedding will happen and be consummated and we will celebrate and feast forever. The action is not only to rejoice but to entrust ourselves. To entrust ourselves. To say, Lord... I don't like the jokes at my expense in my family. I don't like the jokes and the looks at my expense at work. I don't like how this is affecting decisions about who does what in my workplace to my disadvantage. But I know one thing. You are wise and you are faithful and you're not going to leave me. I want to end with this. Uh, this biography that came out last year 
by Eric Metaxas about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. There's a picture of Pastor Bonhoeffer. I want to read this and then I'll be done. Uh, Bonhoeffer was part of the plot to assassinate Hitler. It was discovered and he was executed for it. He was already in trouble for things he had written and preached. And uh, this is an account by the man who was the camp doctor in the German camp where he was executed. He wrote this with no idea that anyone would ever care about this. This doctor's name was Fischer Hulstrung. And he says this is what the last five minutes of Bonhoeffer's life were like. On the morning of that day between 5 and 6 o'clock, the prisoners, he lists them, were taken from their cells and the verdicts of the court-martial read out to them through the half-open door in one room of the huts I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer before taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. He was hanged. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Which leads me to believe that what he was praying so passionately was not get me out of this. What was he praying? I trust you. Okay. This is real. We need to rejoice in the tests and entrust ourselves to Him. If He gave us Jesus, what would He not give us? Let's pray. Father God, we don't want insults. We don't want to be left out. We don't want to be the butt of jokes. And we don't want to be attacked. And we don't want our property confiscated. We don't want to be imprisoned. But Lord, you yourself said all these things could happen. Do not be surprised. Enable us to go out. And Father, in the fire that you put us through, not to be consumed, not to be hurt forever, but cleansed and refined, made lovely for what you are doing in this city. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.